This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you look at public opinion, you find that across class differences, across ethnic differences, people basically favor skilled English-speaking migrants who are not going to require a lot in the way of support to lead decent lives for them and their families. Hello, welcome to Sir Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Rahan Salam, old friend of mine. He's the executive editor at the National Review. He's a columnist for The Atlantic, got a million other affiliations. He's a busy dude. His new book is called Melting Pot or Civil War, A Son of Immigrants Makes Case Against Open Borders. Ryan's always been a super interesting thinker. He's someone who's on the right, but he tries to find new syntheses, new approaches to problems. And that's very much what he's trying to do here. He's trying to carve out I would say he's trying to carve out a restrictionist position in the immigration debate that is also pro-immigrant. He's trying to justify a restrictionist position out of the immigrant experience, out of whether or not immigrants are assimilated into this country, whether or not this country decides that it actually owes them what it owes other people here and makes commitments to them and keeps those commitments. I read the book. I thought it was really interesting. It left me with a lot of questions. I don't know that I agree with it, but what I really wanted to do was talk about it with Raihan to, to understand how he was thinking about it and push on some of it a little bit. So I'm very grateful to him for being on the show. Um, I think this is a conversation y'all will enjoy a lot. Here's Raihan. Raihan Salam, How's it going, man? I'm very good. It's nice to see you, Ezra. It's good to see you, too. Why don't you tweet anymore, really? I mean, I, you tweet a little bit. You know, I retweet when people link to a column I've written, something along those lines. Retweets are endorsements. <laughs> In this narrow, limited case. <laughs> I uh, think it's because, well, it was doing something to my brain. I cannot speak to what it was doing to other people's brains. But one thing that's really, really important to me is um, feeling like I can read people with whom I disagree and learn from them. And when you are in that world, when you're saturated in it, you can't help but think less of people, including, by the way, people with whom you agree, but because you see how, hey, what happens is you have a high-status person, and you basically converge on that person's opinion, and it happens within seconds. So the number of people who literally are going through this agonizing, arduous process of thinking for themselves, they actually have to have this incredible intestinal fortitude, this incredible psychological discipline that most ordinary human beings don't have. So I just feel like I just want to read people and mm-hmm. talk to people and be with them in rooms rather than see this posturing. Do you, you want to know why I know you don't tweet that much anymore? 
because I think it relates to what you're saying. I've struggled um, a lot with how to use Twitter. And the way I use it now is I have it's so it's it's very um, lame. I have a bookmarks folder of individual people on Twitter, uh, which you're in. And I go and I only look at individual people's Twitter pages as if I was reading an old school blog. Uh, and I still yeah. take your point and agree with you that it people are not their best on Twitter. But it is very different reading one person's voice in a concentrated way, like what they've been thinking about for the past couple of days, than that cacophony where you're seeing the whole herd converge on the same topic in the same ways. Um, and I found it is more – it's more psychically manageable for me. That is really dead on. There are a handful of people, and oftentimes in these little corners of social media, little corners of what was once the blogosphere, you know, someone like Annie Lowry, you know. I've heard of her. <laughs> Matthew C. Klein, Brad Setzer, you know, my friend Zan DeSanctis at National Review. There are just a few people like that where it's like, okay, I feel like I can take this and disembed it from the kind of larger thing. And there's some debates and there's some communities around certain debates where you feel like, you know, like the whole macro world. I mean, that still feels like something you can read. Joe Weisenthal is still a real yeah, pleasure Matt to read. Grossman tweeting out political science papers is invaluable. Exactly. And just very earnestly. Like, I feel yeah. like there's team earnest Twitter and they are just kind of duking it out against this incredibly powerful blob that's like not just unearnest Twitter, but like kind of both I'm being nasty and cynical, but also in this desperate way. Like, I just don't want someone to, like, out-cynical me. Because, you know, it's this weird kind of phenomenon where it's just everyone seems a little bit afraid, and the nastiness is actually the product of fear rather than of ballsiness. And, uh, yeah. I had Arthur Brooks on the show a while back, and he talked a lot about contempt versus anger and the idea that contempt is an unproductive emotion, contempt is a disengaging emotion, and anger is an engaging emotion. And I was thinking about how much of Twitter is contempt and not anger. One of the things I've noticed, which I don't feel is true a couple of years ago, is people now, when they're replying to a tweet of someone they don't like, they screenshot it as opposed to linking to it. Or when they're replying to an article, they screenshot the piece of the article they don't like as opposed to linking to it. And I've, I've thought a lot about the old blog here, which you and I were both in. I endlessly lament the passing of the American scene. <laughs> uh, but the blog here was angry. It wasn't civil. I mean, I remember the, the emails I would get from reporters who felt I was being uncivil in my uh, fisking of their articles, which, you know, that had its own set of problems. But it was link-based. I mean, the idea was there was a chain of information going back and you could trace it back and you could read what people are saying and you expected people to be in dialogue with you. And I'm I'm very struck by how – you obviously can do that on Twitter. But I'm interested by the way people have chosen to stop. They have chosen to say like, I am showing this and I am, I am choosing to decontextualize. And if this person had put up a uh, – like a clarification or a second tweet or there was more in the article that might have put that out, I actually don't want to show you that. Like I just – I want you to join me in this moment of contempt and I don't want to pollute it by giving you any more information. There is this funny way – so you were a very important part of the professionalization of the blogosphere, you as an individual, and kind of offering a model for a different way to offer content that is shareable, you know, offering a unit of content. And that had a great deal of value in terms of clarity in terms of bringing people into conversations versus one thing about the blogosphere that I loved but that was actually not especially accessible to people outside of it was the extent to which it was meditative. People actually thinking through things out loud in a space where you felt for whatever reason vulnerable enough to do that. Now, the funny thing is that you see the coverage of a lot of news now where people – 
are actually, in practice, thinking out loud because they're making these very provisional statements. They are going through, for example, the 400-page proposed public charge regulation. And it's only Dara Lind who is, after kind of a couple of days of absorbing it, actually characterizing it you know, accurately, whereas you have people who are under a huge amount of pressure, I get it, but doing it for mainstream news outlets, for major newspapers, who really are doing this in a super provisional way, talking to advocates, and, you know, it's the advocates who are, of course, you know, willing to assume the worst, and it's so great to have a small handful of people who are actually taking the spirit of that. Let me, you know, kind of do this 24, 48 hours later after having absorbed this to the best of my ability. But then the thing is you're overrun by the meme. You are overrun by what was the kind of little screenshot that crystallizes this this contempt, right? And it's kind of hard to know. It's like a race between the person who's trying to do the, hey, let me actually do my best to make sense of this versus, you know, memes move at the speed of light, right? And it's uh, it's very interesting to see this in process. I, I lament this a lot, actually. And I just brought this podcast to twice a week. Um, we're now officially going two times a week. And one of the reasons I've focused a lot more on podcasting, I do this in the weeds, is that I got into this, right? I got into blogging. The reason I liked blogging was I liked thinking out loud. I mean, it was interesting to work through ideas and to try things on. You could write blog posts that were wrong. You know, you could write blog posts that you thought were probably wrong and say, I think this might be wrong. And and there's just not a lot of room for that. There are a few people who still write in that spirit. And, um, you know, I think that some of them have found a home at Vox, which I think is a really positive thing. And, you know, at National Review, some of my colleagues are people who really – here's the thing. So one approach is let me just focus on things that are quantifiable, that are tractable. But then you run into the fact that actually the most interesting things about life are qualitative. They are things that are actually very hard to quantify. And also, by the way, social scientists are embedded in communities. They are people. They have a class position. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? They kind of live in places. They live in living, breathing communities that they are accountable to. And the data they're working off of. Exactly. emerges out of communities. Exactly, are structured in certain ways. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating when you read the history of the kind of big pan-ethnic categories we use, like the Hispanic-Latino category. I mean, these have a history, you know what I mean? And they actually kind of bend you towards thinking about the world in certain ways uh, versus the kind of messiness of lived experience. And trying to talk about that stuff intelligently is always a challenge, and it actually requires being exploratory to some degree. At least uh, that's my sense. So I think that's actually a good bridge to the book, uh, because I think the book has a lot of that in it. So let me begin here. What made you write this book? Um, This is legitimately an issue where I feel um, an identification with many different people on many different sides of the debate. And my own thinking about it changed uh, a decent amount. I mean, not drastically, but it changed subtly. It keeps changing in different ways. And it just seems so important to me to just share some thoughts about it because I didn't really see my perspective reflected on this issue. There are lots of issues where I roughly see other people who are reflecting, frankly, a better version of kind of what my rough intuition is. And this was an area where I felt like, huh, I know that this set of attitudes is not unique to me. I know other people hold them, but I also felt like, wow, I'm having so many conversations where people are saying one thing to me personally, and we're having one kind of really thoughtful conversation about some of these complexities around migration and integration, but then it's just not reflected in the world. So that's why I felt kind of an obligation to write about it. When was this? 
I was thinking about this for a while. Uh, certainly I was thinking about it, you know, I'm sure I was thinking about writing something longer about this as long ago as before the 2016 presidential election. You know, just because it's obviously something that's very personal to me, and I say, excuse me, obviously because my parents are immigrants, which is in the subtitle of the book. And, you know, it's just something that's been a huge defining part of my life. And... Yeah. I, I also had this sort of weird revelation, which is that I am a native-born American of Bangladeshi descent. There are somewhere in the neighborhood of over 200,000 people of Bangladeshi descent in the United States. About a quarter of them are U.S.-born. And of those who are U.S.-born, something like 4% of them are over the age of 30. And those who are as old as I am, I'm almost 40 years old, it's like a vanishingly small huh. group of people. And there are a lot of other folks like me, second-generation folks who belong to groups that when we were growing up, the groups were tiny. Now the groups are larger and different. And I noticed people who are younger than me had different sensibilities around these issues. I reached out to them. I talked to people. And there was something about my experience that I thought, yeah, I'm kind of a weirdo. And I think that maybe I have something to add to this conversation by dint of being a little bit um, off kilter. One of the repeated threads in the personal sides of the book is being part of a community in an, in an outsidery way. So you just talked about how, on the one hand, the Bangladesh immigrant community is small compared to other immigrant communities, how your particular position in it is unusual. And then also something that, that felt to me to be threaded through here is that to be someone who is emotionally pro-immigration in the conservative movement in the last two or three years strikes me as something that would have had a lot of tension involved in it. I'll correct you slightly to say that when I think about the emotional valence of this stuff, I think of it in a different sort of way. So I think of, and, and I'm sure my parents would resist this, but I think of my father as fundamentally a kind of more cosmopolitan, more individualistic, more urban kind of person, just, you know, by nature. And I think of my mother, who is a really brilliant, thoughtful person, as is my father, but she is someone who is just a bit more kind of parochial and loyalty-oriented, and, you know, just that's just where she comes from. And I'm a lot more like my mother in that sense. So I guess emotionally, when you tell me there are people who feel dislocated and displaced, when you tell me there are people who think, hey, gosh, you know, I'm not necessarily super articulate, but I feel like the world is changing in some way, and I'm trying to kind of get grips on it, and I'm trying to make sense of it, and I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable with it. Those are actually people I really identify with instinctively. But the issue is that in our politics, we have such incredibly narrow vocabularies. It's kind of like, you know, Morris Fiorina wrote a book about this recently called Unstable Majorities. And the argument was, look, is the public more extreme or do you just have these super polarized parties? And because we have the system that forces you to choose between them. So my whole thing was like, wow, there's a whole universe of people. And I just didn't feel like social science was always doing justice to the kind of richness and complexity of how people think because they, you know, I take these social science studies, like, um, you know, some universities, they allow you to take part in a bank and, you know, you do these kind of digital surveys. And it's like amazing. Sometimes I'm like, I cannot finish this because you're everything, you're forcing a binary choice and you're putting it so tendentiously that I literally refuse to answer these questions. So I kind of think that that tendency, you know, I'll call it the parochial tendency against interest is something that I have always identified with. And in a funny way, I've actually kind of struggled against in the opposite direction. Let me discipline that tendency and try to be open to the arguments of other people I love, like my dad and their sensibilities around these issues. Well, it's one thing that is interesting in here. It, it seemed to me that on the spectrum of arguments, in a way that I'm pretty sympathetic to, you were having trouble with the idea that 
The argument here that really makes sense on the left is also the one that the fewest people really hold, that it's the open borders argument, that one of the problems in this whole debate is that – and I think this infects both sides a little bit – is that there is a suspicion that what the left really believes in is open borders and there's a suspicion that what the right really believes in is closed borders. And while I'm not sure that either one is true in general, I think that what is true and and something it felt to me that you were grappling with in here is that the underlying emotional principles do point in those directions. And so we end up having a lot of debates that people feel either instinctively or try to argue are happening a bit on false principles or or, or false arguments as people try to – develop just so stories that get in the direction of their outcome but don't really seem to be hitting the core emotional justification for their position. Right, and then also don't want to be held accountable for mm-hmm. the kind of arguments they make that connect with that emotive underlying argument. Yeah, I mean, I, I opened the book by chatting a little bit about, you know, just one experience in New York City, but then I talk about Barack Obama's speech when he uh, signed the executive mm-hmm. order around DACA, and it was just really striking. DACA was actually a pretty narrowly cabined, you know, executive action relative to the argument he was making, which is that, you know, thou shalt not oppress a stranger. Uh, And, you know, saying, wait a second, how do you reconcile this with the particulars of the proposal or the fact that elsewhere you've said, hey, we need to have a kind of managed flow? It's this way in which a certain kind of soaring rhetoric, it appeals to a lot of people, but it's actually not the actual policy. And then when you say, hey, wait a second, there's a contradiction here, but then you kind of resent being called out on the contradiction. So that is that uncomfortable space that I sit in on pretty much all issues and certainly on this one. But but I want to hold here because I do think this is interesting. You bring up the Obama speech, I think correctly so. But that exists almost everywhere. I mean, when you look at uh, what George W. Bush said about folks who cross the border, when you look at what Jeb Bush said about them, when you look at what Rick Perry said about them, we have a little bit of a problem in this debate in that if you allow yourself to open up to the needs and the fears and the actions it takes someone, you know, to leave their family and take a dangerous journey and come here, like the moment you open up yourself up to that, just being a human to them, you begin to destroy your limiting principles. Now, that doesn't mean people don't keep a limiting principle, right? Uh, like I am not an open borders person because I don't think political stability can handle it. But that – there's something that happens in this debate and, and people pick up on it pretty quickly. And it's not that actually people are lying. It's that one of the hard things here is that the moral force of there isn't a really good reason um, that morally people should not be allowed in is very hard, it seems to me, to connect to the practical difficulties of actually assimilating immigrants, um, retaining a social safety net, and keeping political stability. And people get trapped in the middle of that quite a bit. Yes. I think that one of the differences here, and it goes back to what I characterized as the difference between my parents' gut instincts and something that, you know, I wrestle with myself— I just don't think of myself as someone who says, here is my first principle. I will reason everything back from this. Every position I take must kind of wind up adhering to this. I think of, you know, conservatism, I guess in my idiosyncratic definition, I almost think of it as an anti-ideology. Just this idea that, hey, you know, we're thinking about particular places and things and ideas and practices and the rhythms that those things require. I I mean, you know, I think about this – 
Just when you think about tea and the way we consume tea versus the way we consume fentanyl, tea is something that is, you know, there's caffeine in it. Caffeine can be pretty dangerous, actually. But we've developed practices around it for a very long period of time. Are they perfectly rational? It could wind up being that over the course of, like, having a very long history of trial and error around this. Um, But, you know, fentanyl, gosh, you know, you just, like, manufacture it in a factory. And we just don't have the experience of how to think about and how to use this thing. So then there's this tendency to be like, okay, you know, this thing is evil, this thing is good, versus, well, no, it's actually just about these practices that emerge over a really long period of time. And that's kind of why I realized that it would make me a terrible philosopher. I would be an absolutely awful one. But I just don't really think in terms of like, this principle is right, and therefore I must kind of hold myself accountable to that principle. Whereas you are someone, I think, who takes your principles really, really seriously. And you hold yourself to account. And when you kind of wind up in a kind of accommodating place that's short of living up to your principle, you sit uncomfortably in that. Whereas I, for better or for worse, I just think, yeah, I mean, this is the way the world must be. We must be embedded in these complex communities, complex ideas and attitudes that kind of can't be simplified so rigorously as to be reduced to an equation. So I'm going to put aside the fentanyl tea analogy because I'm not sure I quite agree on the on the fentanyl question. But I think the place I'm trying to take us here to put my cards on the table is that I think we have a lot of fake debates over immigration. And one of the things where I am sympathetic to conservatives, um, sympathetic to critics of me, for instance, is a – and sympathetic to something you write in the book is that you listen to the rhetoric and the rhetoric of people who are more pro-immigration and you say – That rhetoric does not appear at any level to have a limiting principle. If you're going to talk about that we cannot oppress a stranger, if you're going to make these arguments about the children who are showing up on the border, well, then what about all the people who didn't come but would like to? What about all the people who have just as bad of a circumstance? Are you going to let all of them in too? Are you just going to go to open borders? And there are some people who go to open borders. But a lot of folks who are pro-immigration don't. But the thing that you get into is that because people suspect that that's the whole of the underlying ideology, that people don't trust that you know, limiting principles will be adhered to. And on the other side, one of the, the questions I have about the book is that it does not seem to me to take seriously enough that just as one of the principles on the left at its core is just more, it's, you know, we'll see what we can handle. But yeah, like immigration, there, there is a moral imperative there that one of the really profound principles on the right is just less. Donald Trump is not out there trying to set up a whole new immigration system. What he wants is less. He'd go to less in a lot of different directions. In fact, he'd legalize a lot of people who came here illegally if he could cut the number of people who could come here legally. It's not an issue of how many people are here legally or illegally. It's not an issue of laws. It's an issue of less. And so it seems to me that we often have an immigration debate that we sanitize by talking about in terms of economics or all kinds of different things, as opposed to this core question that I don't know that we're that good at talking about of, you know, can the country handle more? Would more be good? Or would it be better to have less? I guess my perspective on this is a little different because I try to focus on the most banal aspects of the policy debates we're dealing with, one of which is is this. It's really super simple and basic. I rarely hear anyone talk about it. In the early 1980s, about 11% of new green cards in the United States were issued to people over the age of 50. Now, it was about 20% in 2016. That's a lot more than 11%. And it's funny because it's not something anyone ever 
talks about. You know, if you look at arguments for immigration, it's oftentimes, hey, this is a force that's going to add vitality to our population. It's something that's going to make us younger. We're otherwise aging. But it's like, well, well, actually, like, look at this thing. You know, you have a lot of late age immigration. And then, you know, there was a piece in the New York Times a little while ago, an op-ed about this, just talking about how, you know, the Goodlatte bill, this one Republican piece of legislation, wants to ban immigrant grandparents from the country. But immigrant grandparents, they provide childcare. They do amazing things. They enrich communities. But actually, the Goodlatte bill said, no, you can bring in your parents, if you're a citizen, on a renewable visa, provide you provide your parent with health insurance. And it's so funny because, I mean, those scholars who wrote that op-ed in the Times, they are, I'm sure, really thoughtful, serious, smart people who mean well and who are totally offended and wounded by the idea of barring immigrant grandparents from the country. But the thing is that, gosh, like, where were they getting their information about the Goodlatte bill? It was so interesting to me. And it's like something as basic as that, this basic question about what are we actually doing? How does this actually work? What are the principles versus what is the thing that is going to get people outraged about what's happening in this or that moment? So I appreciate that, you know, you are talking about these deep principles. I think you make a lot of great points. It is on some level a kind of as much as we can versus just less. And I kind of get both of those impulses. But to me, it's really helpful to kind of cut through that by saying, actually, let's look at the arguments for and then let's look at what we're actually doing. And also, you know, can we actually handle the system as it exists right now versus the sensibility that says that, hey, there might be different speed limits depending on other circumstances, depending on our political economy and the way that our country is changing. But see, here's where I'm not sure that's true. Here's my counter on this. The reason I focus a lot on the idea of there being a bit of a false immigration debate is that I think until we're having the real one, we cannot get to these downstream technocratic issues. A few minutes ago, you were saying that I'm somebody who goes a lot from first principles. And I was thinking, God, I never get accused of that. <laughs> I'm always accused of being this bloodless technocrat. And one of the things that I've observed in, in a lot of the issues that, that I've been part of is that once you have more or less agreement— I know you better, on, that's why I think that, yeah. <laughs> Once you uh, have more or less agreement on the framework, then you can get into a lot of debate about the details, right? Like if you agree that we should have a single-payer healthcare system, there's a lot of debate about how to do that, what to do with payment rates, how to handle the rural hospital issue. I mean you can do a lot within that structure. Similarly, if we agreed on how many people should be coming into this country, say— what percentage of this country should be foreign-born, what percentage of this country should be immigrant. Then there's a lot of downstream questions. One of the things I, I, I think about when I read this book, and similar to how I think about it when I see a lot of the proposals that come out, is that there seems to me to be a desire to invent an immigration debate we're not having. And that if we can invent a debate that we're not quite having, then we could solve it. Because if we can construct an agreement to a framework – then there are a million ways to make the system more positive some than the one we have, right? Your point about, you know, do you want to change the mix to be a younger mix is, I think, a totally reasonable point. It's a, one very much worth talking about. And I keep seeing people of good faith come up with things like that, right? I think the, the big one that comes up here is a gang of eight a couple of years ago. You know, there were all kinds of proposals put forward to be a compromise on dreamers, for instance, right? There are proposals in the House, proposals in the Senate, and they didn't go anywhere because they kept getting caught on this question that was always there and that Donald Trump is allowed to become much more explicit of more or less. And so I guess that's my push to you, which is there's a lot of interesting arguments in the book, but they seem to me to take place in a framework where that more or less thing has been resolved. You're and until we can resolve it, sure. I don't see how we can have these other arguments. Well, 
I will agree with you that we are having a fake debate, but I guess I disagree with you about what the real debate is. Um, I see the kind of sine qua non, the kind of fundamental question. I've never known how to pronounce that until now. You know what? I may (laughs) well be doing it incorrectly. But I always think of it as, look, are we allowed to have a policy that is framed as being in the national interest? You mentioned stability before, one that puts that front of mind. And that's basically taking out the to oppress a stranger argument. Basically by saying that, yes, that is deeply morally appealing, but we're going to take that off the table because, frankly, no one is willing to actually bite the bullet for that. There are people who are willing to bite the bullet, people I engage with and respect enormously for being willing to do so. But in the space of politics, that's basically taken off the table. So let's do that and then go from there. And I guess what I'm trying to put across in the book is that I actually think that there may well be a case for immigration reduction. There are a lot of people who've read this book who've said to me, Raihan, actually, you know, I get your arguments, but I think that they're totally compatible with the case for reduction. And I say, you know, that might be true, but I believe we can rebalance first. And that is a good starting point. And also that is taking a kind of lightning rod off the table in the hope of achieving some kind of somewhat wider, more expansive majority. Now, I also will admit that to some extent I was thinking about this in the context of the way that our political system works. I happen to be a fan of our system over parliamentary democracy, but we don't actually honor the system. And the system, as I understand it, is you need to have some kind of broad overlapping consensus rather than kind of wild swings back and forth. And that means that everyone is going to have to, you know, make some kind of sacrifice. So I just was thinking backwards from, you know, both, yeah, what do I believe, what do I believe to be the most pressing issues, but also in terms of the policy upshot, which is actually kind of a small part of the book, uh, thinking about, you know, what might be able to achieve some kind of durable majority, partly because the durable majority thing is also about what do we do about the multi-generational impact of this? What do we do thinking about the way we want our country to look in 20, 30 years for children? Well, in terms of that, one of the things that struck me about the book is that there was a lot of it where I think this is a book about inequality masquerading as a book about immigration. Is that unfair? I think that Immigration in an age of inequality and where inequality is actually having some corrosive effects. So so basically, I don't think of inequality being a problem as a kind of first principle. And that's why I talk about between group inequality and this idea of an inequality in which you come to believe that the system is not legitimate, it does not incorporate you, it does not value you. So I kind of think that inequality in one society where it is not rigidly divided among groups will have a totally different valence than a society in which it really feels as though there are some groups that are persistently excluded. So I guess I really don't see inequality as the driver, but I do think that when you have a lot of ethnic and class stratification in a society, migration Migration in that context really does mean something different than it does in a different context. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. One of the things that I saw in the book is that there was a lot of focus on how to reduce inequality among immigrant populations. But to that exact analysis, it seemed to me that another way of thinking about that book is that it argues for a much more profound focus on inequality and economic mobility and economic growth among the native population, that you're really positing that there are different contexts in which immigration can take place and different contexts in which a society can brown. And as a context in which there's a lot of inequality, a lot of between-group inequality, and um, a certain amount of stagnation. You talk about the fact that possibly the reason we were able to do immigration pretty well in this country in the 20th century is that we had a lot of economic growth, that the key here is really thinking about economic growth as the only context in which these levels of immigration can be safely absorbed. Yeah, it's also kind of about the character of that economic growth. So one thing that I, I really try to you know kind of emphasize is that, look, you can absolutely grow an economy extensively by adding more labor to it. I mean, I certainly would never deny that. But it's really about the character of the economic growth and whether it is inclusive, whether it's egalitarian, whether you really uh, you know, feel as though you know, all boats are being lifted by the rising tide. And I think that um, you know, that's something that really is missing. And also, I guess another thing I wanted to really emphasize is that if you think of assimilation purely as people learning English and embracing American pop culture, then yeah, I mean, it's absolutely happening. It would be foolish to suggest otherwise. But assimilation in a stratified society and a society that is stratified in part along ethnic lines means a stratified assimilation in which you have people who are literally being assimilated into marginalized minorities in any one of these groups. And this is one thing that drives me crazy. You know, people often talk about this stuff through the lens of color, and there's obviously a place for that, but there's heterogeneity in all of these groups. There are people who are taking the kind of upward escalator, and there are people who are incorporated into marginalized minorities. And also partly goes back to that tractability question. We have census questions about whether you're Asian or not, whether you're Hispanic or not, but that's actually not granular enough to understand the process because there are absolutely people of Hispanic origin who are assimilating into the mainstream, meaning a part of society where their ethnicity is not determinative of their fate. And my project is trying to build a society in which as many people as possible fall in that bucket where uh, your ethnicity is not determining your fate. So I want to go back to this idea of between group inequality for a second. One of the things that I think is interesting within the immigration reality is that you have a lot of cities that have very high levels of immigration. And I don't just mean the big ones like L.A. or New York, but I grew up in Orange County. Orange County, California has a lot of immigration. And those are not the places in general that seem to have the most difficult relations between um, native-born populations and, and foreign-born populations. A lot of the political instability around immigration is coming from places that actually don't have a lot of immigration. Now, I recognize that there can be between group inequality viewed from afar, but that isn't usually the way I think we would think about that. There, there seems to be a capacity to absorb actually quite a lot of immigration in a place, 
But then watching that happen from afar is a radicalizing or fear-inducing experience. I respectfully disagree for this reason. I just grew up in immigrant-rich neighborhoods, and my perspective is a little different for this reason. In Orange County, and you obviously know a lot more about Orange County than I do, but if you live in Irvine, California, you live in a place where, gosh, you know, if you want to get in a decent house, it may well cost you close to seven figures to do that. Uh, and you may in well— Irvine? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, well, there are many. I guess I haven't there are many, been there for a long time. There are many affluent communities. There are many affluent communities, but certainly pretty darn expensive, Ezra. A lot more so than the median household income in California as a whole. And if you're looking at northern Orange County, in contrast, you're looking at some you know pretty working class communities mm-hmm. that have a different character. So if you're looking at southern OC, if you're looking at Huntington Beach, you know maybe we can agree that that's a pretty affluent community. You're looking at communities where your experience of migration is managed pretty carefully, partly through the intervention of zoning laws, right? And a variety of other things that kind of keep out some of the communities, keep out some of the quote-unquote chaos that might be associated with a lot of migration. So your experience of it is hierarchical. You have migrants who might be low-skill who are essentially in subordinate roles. You have migrants who are high-skill who are your peers, and you're able to have a very managed experience of them if you are living in a kind of gated community. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, but I want to be a little careful here because Orange County as a whole— Orange is County one, is super diverse and complicated. Quite diverse, and, and it's also not a gated community. Oh, yeah. It's oh, not a gated oh, place. Absol- like, absolutely I just want to be a little not. careful for people who are not Oh, no, no, no. no. Not absolutely there. not. Absolutely not. There are, however, some parts of it that are pretty darn close to gated, right? There are places uh, oh, you can, look, you you have can go to Newport Beach and find a gated and find a gated community. And I'm certainly going to be the last to defend certain zoning laws to you. But but well, the, the one place I want to just be careful here is that we're not setting up um, a false image oh, of yeah. places. Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to set up a false image of places either. And I guess what I'm saying is that in affluent communities, it could be in Orange County, it can be in Cook County, it can be anywhere in between. If you are a wealthy person in a place where our geography is very weird by the standards of market democracies, we have a lot more socioeconomic segregation than is common in such places. And when you have that, you basically can have a pretty curated, managed experience of diversity. Now, there are other places where you don't have that, right? But when I think about Brooklyn, where I live, it's really fascinating to see communities where there are people who, for whom it is totally central to their identity, that they are open and welcoming people who are fighting tooth and nail against the integration of their local public schools. These are people who are oftentimes really broad-minded, decent people who see no contradiction here. So one might think of it as the bad outcome being, I'm a restrictionist. Another bad outcome, to my mind, however, is that, hey, I'm going to see to it that I have a super curated life. It reminds me of South Asia. You know, my family is of South Asian origin. And it's really fascinating. You have this ethic where people are extremely kind of pristine about their own person, about their own home, and yet there are people who treat public spaces as totally different. Those are spaces where, you know, it's this kind of upper caste attitude, you could say, that I think is pretty um, corrosive of certain kinds of civic solidarity. So I want to think through this because I think that you just sort of subtly changed what we were talking about. Um, But I want to think through the ways in which the two things interact. So what I was saying was that an interesting dimension of the politics of immigration is that one hypothesis you might have is that the most aggressive politics would come in the most immigrant-heavy places. That's not really what we see. It's not that what happened is Donald Trump got elected because he won the white vote in every city in America. That isn't how that worked. What you're saying, which is something you bring up in the book, is that you are concerned that the way we are constructing immigration now is going to lead generation over generation into possibly a very immigrant-rich society 
but a society where there's a lot less integration, a society where sort of, let's put it this way, well-meaning progressives and well-meaning maybe libertarians have permitted a significant low-wage immigration caste to emerge, where they're getting a benefit out of that by getting cheap labor, but that you're not having um, this kind of civic solidarity or, or the level of integration one might want. Is well, that fair? I do want to just dig into this a tiny bit more. So, okay, so there's one story um, which is true that you have a lot of anti-immigration sentiment in regions that have low numbers of foreign-born persons. Oftentimes, those are areas where you see rapid growth mm -hmm. of the foreign-born population. There are other subtleties. For example, what is the skill distribution of that influx? So, you know, again, that has a political effect as well. So there are a lot of different complexities there. But what I was focusing on is the subjective piece of this. Because when you're talking about a lot of those cities, a lot of those diverse places, actually, you know, the number of people who are voting is not necessarily totally inclusive. Uh, you know, there. <laughs> so it's this kind of subtle question of what is the subjective experience of the people people who are setting the tone for those conversations. And my argument was simply that when you have a situation in which you are at the top of the hierarchy and your experience of diversity is one where you are the beneficiary of that change, then it's not necessarily the same as saying, hey, I'm in the midst of this amazing place where I'm exposed to all of the competition. Rather, you know, I'm shielded from the competition by my credentials, by where I live, and much else. And then, yeah, you might have very benign feelings about it, but at the same time, the zoning thing, it's interesting because it seems like a side issue, but I actually think of it as pretty profound. There are some people, and you're one of them, who say simultaneously, number one, I do want to be opening and welcoming to the world, and number two, I am willing to to actually see my own community change, I'm willing to see that kind of dynamism. Whereas what I kind of, I guess my intuition is that that actually doesn't always go hand in hand. So someone like you, frankly, I don't really see you as someone that I'm going to be like all that critical of because you're willing to bite the bullet. You are a kind of bullet biter. There are a lot of other people who aren't willing to bite the bullet. And I think that their subjective position, and I'm projecting here, but is this weird one in which, yeah, I mean, as long as I'm at the top of the hierarchy, I love this stuff. So what happens when you're not at the top of the hierarchy? That's an interesting question. So, But I think that's a question we should focus. I want to take myself out because my role in here is a little bit odd in that I'm the son of immigrants. So, like, I have emotional commitments in this. Right. But also my experience is that I grew up, you know, my father has a Brazilian accent. You know, I have more family in Brazil than I have um, or so more extended family there than I have here. So I'm part of the Orange County sort of immigration story. That said, your point about subjective experience I think is important, but it feels a little bit odd to me in this respect, which is that one of the reasons I bring up the experience of Orange County is that across it, it's a very income diverse place. You have Santa Ana, you have Newport Beach, you have all kinds of things happening in there. And the position of the restrictionist, or even to some degree the position of the book, which I would not count as restrictionist because I think ultimately you come down on keeping a steady level of green cards. But but even if you didn't, what you're talking about doing is very dramatically changing the skill mix we allow in. And I'm not sure that – and it certainly did not seem to me growing up that subjectively what people even who were in lower-skill jobs making less money in Santa Ana wanted was to not be there. And so I worry that in a an argument that is pointing out a kind of, I don't know, a power hypocrisy among people who frame themselves as open but who you see as open so long as the openness doesn't threaten them, 
it's nevertheless wiping out some of the experience of the people who are actually have come to the country are building a different kind of life and are actually quite happy with that life. And we yep. can we should have a discussion about what is happening in social mobility and second and third generations. But it's not obvious to me that the key actor here and the only subjective experience we should be concerned about is, to your point, a sort of upper income, hunt, you know, native born Huntington Beach. Oh, God, resident. yes. Yes, absolutely. So I guess the reason I mention that, Ezra, is because a lot of the migrants who are the folks that you describe, you know, they might be earning modest wages, but, you know, they certainly made that choice themselves. A lot of those folks don't vote. A lot of those folks are not eligible to naturalize, possibly because they're unauthorized. Or if they are authorized, they might actually not be in a position to naturalize because they're so poor that they can't afford the kind of relatively modest fees. And then when you are looking at the naturalized citizen population, this is a population that tends to vote at much lower levels. So I think that it, they're really, really important in terms of making these arguments. And, and there are certainly naturalized but wait, what populations. Is, why are, are we important. focusing on vote? What is? Oh yeah. What role is voting playing in this argument? Well, I guess I mentioned it because when you were earlier on talking about the politics of the issue and then, you know, kind of how is that politics reflected back to us, right? So when I'm thinking about this issue, I just think it's really important to think about the people when you're talking about it politically, who are the people who are voting in these constituencies. But when you're talking about that subjective experience of those folks, I think that there's a lot of complexity to it. You know, one piece of that complexity is that people are oftentimes way more open to migrants who are their relatives, but when you're talking about these larger arguments about openness to migration, it's not really about that. Because when you're looking at the relatives of folks who are here, you know, they typically are drawn, many of them come from Latin America, the Philippines, other, you know, kind of, you know, middle-income countries. They're not actually the folks who would potentially benefit the most from the place premium. Those folks are a different story. So when you're talking about migrants, absolutely there is support for reunification with their relatives. Despite the fact, by the way, that having more folks who are your co-ethnics with similar skills, that means more intense wage competition, which goes to the fact that when you look at public opinion, and you're not looking at like a one-off survey, but you're looking at experimental research on it, you find that across class differences, across ethnic differences, people basically favor skilled English-speaking migrants uh, who are not going to require a lot in the way of support to lead decent lives for them and their families. Uh, so I think that you're totally right when you talk about those migrants who are here and their opinions. It's super important. I certainly am very passionate about it. But what you find is that it's really personal about their experiences and their family networks. So if you said, hey, let's have a policy that, you know, your relatives won't be able to get in, but we'll be able to bring in, let's say, you know, kind of a couple million more folks who are really desperate and poor and eager to get in the country, you will find some support for that. But it's kind of a tricky proposition. And partly because, you know, this is a population that, you know, is either not voting or voting at somewhat lower levels, it's not really at the center of debate. I often feel like they're used as mascots for other arguments. I mean, not necessarily by, by you, of course, but I think that that's a thing that happens rather than looking at the fact that, you know, it's really personal what's driving it for people, including their family networks. What arguments are they used as mascots for? Uh, just as arguments for openness rather than arguments about, you know, kind of people who are particularly concerned about the rights of these migrants who live in these societies and have lived in them for a very long time. Say more on that. I'm not trying to understand this point. As an argument for increasing immigration levels rather than a discrete question of what are the particular policies that this or that person might endorse. So, for example, you might be an unauthorized immigrant who would say, yeah, I will take a deal in which I am granted legal status and in which we change the future flows in some way. That might be okay with me. But the thing is that immigration advocates – 
they often come from and are often cognizant of the fact that they come from a more privileged position, so they don't necessarily feel the legitimacy to make an argument that feels like a compromise relative to a maximal position. And I think that that is one of the things that kind of complicates this debate in terms of what we wind up hearing, what we wind up reading on the op-ed page. It's interesting to me. One of the things I'm noticing in this argument that I didn't see as much in the book is that you have um, a very complex ecosystem of the motivations of the people you feel are participating in this debate. Definitely on both sides, yes. And that one of the things that I'm trying to think about how to sort of like fit this into the, the framework you lay out here. Why don't we go here? Talk to me about the backlash paradox. Sure. So uh, there are a lot of scholars who study migration and the politics of migration who will say, look, if you have uh, very high levels of migration, you might also stimulate a backlash, and that backlash could prove problematic in all sorts of ways. It could make people less inclined to favor public investment and much else. This is a bad thing. But I guess what I call the backlash paradox is that people never then say, hey, let's rethink migration, how we approach it, whether or not we have a selective or skills-based system, or whether we stick with the status quo, partly because there's a belief that to make any tweak along those lines, to have any reform along those lines, would be a callow surrender to bigotry, as I as I write in the book. So I guess I see that as a, as a bit of a tension. So let, let's talk there, because I think it actually weighs on the, the earlier discussion in, in a useful way. So one of the things I think the backlash paradox idea gets right is that there are a lot of people who recognize that under their model of immigration, something is going wrong, right? There is a backlash that is building, that backlash in very large part elected Donald Trump, and there isn't a very clear idea of what to do about it. The thing that I often see happen as a second move in that debate is somebody on the right comes up and says, well, the obvious thing to do about it is to close down the borders, right, is to build a wall, is to cut the immigration flows in half. Like if you really cared about the fact that letting in immigrants was destabilizing some level of politics or creating this pro-Trump um, coalition that, that has emerged and taken power, then what you would do is you would take that seriously and, as you're saying, change immigration. But then the next point, which I often don't hear that then said, is like, no, no, the point is that that's the thing that people are afraid of, right? That if you're worried about that tendency shutting down immigration, you need some other answer. And so one of the, the questions that I have is that the variable that you talk about changing in this book is flows of immigrants. I do wonder about whether or not there are ways through political leadership and, and other things to change the way societies absorb immigrants, to, to think differently about the way um, people react to immigrants coming to the country. Because I agree that you can't just go forward changing nothing, not in the political equilibrium we have. But I also think that there's a, a sort of like a reverse problem with the idea that the way you respond to the backlash paradox is by like sacrificing the policy that you were in the first place trying to protect. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I guess the reason I see this differently is this. I think you may well be right that there's some people who are caught up in this backlash paradox for whom the chief issue is openness or increasing migration levels, et cetera. Whereas my view is a little different. I think that some of these people, at least, that certainly the people that I am very sympathetic to, are actually concerned about social stability, and they're concerned about whether or not we're going to have societies that feel as though they're including those who have historically been marginalized and kind of working them into the center of those societies. But yeah, you're right. If your whole issue is, I'm concerned about the backlash because all I want is you know to have as much inward migration as possible, then fair enough. But I guess what I was trying to speak to is that, you know, this is kind of a big picture thought, I guess. 
I believe that over the next 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to face a lot of uncertainty. There are going to be a lot of big picture changes, including something I read about a little bit in the book, quote unquote, virtual immigration. And I think that we don't exactly know how these things are going to play out. And my nightmare is that we are setting ourselves up for basically a more fractious society and specifically a more ethnically stratified society. I see that as really, really dangerous. So that's what I was most sensitive to. And that's kind of why I think a future flows is really important. But it's also partly this idea of having a symbolic bargain. When you look to the New Deal, in a way, the New Deal was itself a kind of a set of symbolic bargains. It, by the way, kind of happened accidentally. It was not one grand design. Uh, you know, it's something that evolved over time. But in part, it was a way to say, hey, you know, there are aspects of the traditional American way of life that are valuable, how do we preserve those things in an industrializing society? So similarly, I see a need for some kind of bargain that has a symbolic dimension as well, and that speaks to some of these concerns, and that does not necessarily define some of these concerns in ways that marginalize them. But so, so that's why I think that the social stability piece of this is interesting. I actually think that everybody on all sides of this is concerned about social stability. I don't buy the framework you're putting up that there's sort of anybody in this who doesn't worry about that piece of it. I think the question is where does that take you and where can it take you, right? So one thing that I don't actually think we have very good data on at any level is how to think about immigration and social stability. It's clearly different in different places and clearly different in different places at different times. And I don't know that we know what is the best way to, one, bring people in, but also what is the best way to think about how to manage the politics of bringing people in. And so the thing that I struggle with in this, in this debate on all sides of it, because like as we've talked about a little bit before, the limiting principle for me is social stability, right? I would like to have, because I believe it's good for the economy and a moral good, I would like to have higher levels of immigration but not high enough levels that we begin to break society, right? Or that we begin to break American politics, right? Because then you're just going to have a, a backlash. You're not going to achieve what you want to achieve. I'm enough of a pragmatist to understand that. But I am struck by how little of that conversation there is. And, and again, the reason I think there's very little of that conversation goes back to the, the question of framework, that in a world where more people agreed on where they wanted to go, and the question is, okay, like, how do we balance that with social stability and what can we do along the way and how can we how can we work through that? There's quite a bit you can do and quite a bit you can think about. In a world where what people are really arguing over is what should be the demographic and ethnic composition of this country 30 or 40 years from now, which is I think where we really are a lot of the time um, and people don't like to admit it, then we're not really having a conversation about social stability. Then I, what I tend to see is social stability wielded as a weapon by one side or the other in order to, to move things more in the direction of the framework they prefer. This is a really fascinating and thorny issue. I guess my starting point is that ethnic identity is dynamic. It is not fixed. There are some ethnic identities that in the United States in the early 21st century are a bit more fixed than others. But it's really striking. If you look at people who identify as American only or as American Indians, those are two groups that are very dynamic. If you look at states where you've banned affirmative action versus those where it's permitted, you see a difference in how people identify at the margin. There's a fascinating literature on ethnic attrition. And what you see is that, you know, 
depending on the community in question, uh, if you look at uh, Hispanic Americans, for example, um, you know, you see some Hispanic Americans in the third generation in particular who have, let's say, one Latin American origin grandparent who do not identify as Hispanic at all, whereas those who have three or two. So there is all of this complexity around this. And I guess my belief is that uh, because those things aren't fixed, a lot of this conversation around demography is a little confused. You have some people who say, hey, this is all paranoia, this idea that our society is changing because, look, you have ethnic attrition at the edges and you can have more inclusive identities. But then, on the other hand, you have this other discourse that's saying that, hey, actually, the mainstream is toxic. The mainstream is bad in a lot of ways. And so there may well be more prestige in identifying with marginalized communities while not actually having a marginalized experience. So I think that that's one reason why you have this very kind of confused politics around these issues. Because I think that there are a lot of people who feel as though this kind of idea of incorporation into the mainstream um, has been derided and has been devalued. And I do think that, you know, one argument that I make is if we think of this not as people becoming white, but rather having a mainstream, and again, mainstream defined as the space in which ethnicity does not determine your fate, being very, very inclusive. And that's something that I believe is affected by migration and future flows. So one of the interesting things I think tucked in there that I've been thinking a little bit about is that when we talk about these majority-minority projections, there is this question of, well, they could all be off because it's possible that in 20, 30 years, a lot of the people who we currently think of as non-white will identify as white. And so this whole theory of where the um, uh, of where the demography is going to go and how it will be experienced is wrong. But I think something that, that you just were gesturing at but that I've been wanting to talk about with someone is – in a world where America is becoming much more demographically diverse, in a world where the non-white portion of America is becoming much larger, and in a world where that has downstream cultural and political impacts, it may be that there is not as much of a rush to identify with whiteness as there was in previous generations. And I don't really know how to weight that, but – it's certainly – and this I think is something people worry about when they talk about uh, identity politics and, and potentially correctly. But it certainly seems to me that there is more of an emphasis at this moment in American culture in finding and taking pride in a variety of different identities people have on all sides of the, the political spectrum. But if that continues, then I think the expectation that people are going to rush to the biggest identity in the future may not hold up to the degree we think it will. This is a really fascinating and difficult question. One of my um, you know, friendly acquaintances has said that uh, in a way the West is going from Iceland to Turkmenistan and in between we're going to be Mauritius or Guyana. And what I mean by that specifically is this. Iceland is a place— That is all so specific. <laughs> so Iceland is a place where, yeah, I mean, you know, the bulk of the population is descended from this tiny group of people who kind of arrived there, you know, a thousand years ago, you know, what have you. And then Turkmenistan is a place where you have this amazing phenotypic variation. There's a lot of diversity in origins, but basically everyone identifies as Turkmen. I mean, you have people who look as though they're East Asian, others who look as though they're West Eurasian, but, you know, people have this kind of shared identity. And in between, you have societies that are really um, defined by these deep ethnic cleavages between groups. You know, maybe you could have a plurality, something along those lines, but none of them is actually hegemonic. None of them is really dominant. Now, for me, um, I think that that middle space is a space that I find really interesting and fraught and complicated. 
And it's kind of why I keep using this term mainstream because I really do think that there are a lot of people who would totally angrily reject the idea that they are white. But they are people who, in a sense, are able to navigate all kinds of different social spaces. They are not burdened by negative stereotypes. And, you know, that is why I think that we need a new vocabulary around this. You know, one thing that I've kind of toyed around with in my mind is this idea that if the census said, okay, if we're talking about native-born United States uh, citizens— who speak English as their first language and for whom that is their dominant language, and we called that a group. You know, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright used to refer to Usonian houses. So if we talked about the Usonian ethnicity, I think that would be kind of useful. Like, when you talk about ethnicity, people often mean historical ethnicity. You know, uh, my ancestors come from Poland, something like that. And it often becomes symbolic and optional for people who are later generation Americans. There's another way to think about ethnicity that I find useful, which is the kind of ground level way to think about it, which is basically an intermarrying community, a community that is endogamous, where the boundaries between this group and another group are sufficiently sharp that marriage across those lines is kind of a fraught question. And when you you think about ethnicity in those terms, the groups that we call ethnic groups aren't exactly the groups that are those lived ethnic groups. And I guess, you know, my belief is that you can have groups that are small, distinct, separate, and I think that there's value in that. You know, that contributes to diversity. But this idea of having a large mainstream in which forming friendships, forming relationships, forming networks, forming families, it's not tabooed across those lines because you're part of this shared, lived, call it a meta-ethnicity. I think that that's the idea of the melting pot. And the reason why the melting pot idea is in some ways uh, is discredited in some circles is this perception that it was limited to people of European origin. But again, that's partly because there is this instinctive resistance on the part of some people who, as you say, they kind of feel like we don't want to valorize this kind of mainstream that's defined as white as opposed to a mainstream that is defined, you know, because it's inclusive and it's something where people, again, are not burdened by negative it, stereotypes. It, it's interesting to me here the way you frame it because I think I actually agree with that framing. It just feels to me that the language you're using for mainstream is what a lot of other people default to talking about national identity. America has long been a place where we have a lot of hyphenated identities. Um, I'm Jewish American, right? I have a lot of other identities too. I'm um, Californian and, you know, all kinds of different things. I mean, it's certainly true, by the way, that at other points in American history and, and to some degree still at this point, different states have very strong regional um, or state-level identities. Texan is a very powerful identity. It's an identity that is so powerful, sometimes it seems and at times has been um, in conflict with the overall American identity, but certainly is not at this point. I think that Texans feel extremely American. Um, as a Jewish person, I've always felt extremely American. And there's an interesting tension to me, and I've spent some time thinking about it. It sometimes seems to me to be that people who come from majoritarian identities have trouble imagining that people coming from non-majoritarian identities will be able to merge those identities into a national identity because they're used to their own identity being merged. There tends to be a projection of a kind of fear forward that I often don't see because I come at it possibly from a different personal experience. But it could certainly go in multiple different directions. And it does seem to me that part of the challenge here is not about whether or not it can be the case that people have many, many, many identities, identities that they take a lot of pride in but are simultaneously connected to a mainstream, to a national identity, to whatever it might be. There's a question of whether or not it happens, but it doesn't seem to me to be a question of if it happens. And so it is always surprising to me to read or to hear people 
talking about the idea that having these distinct identities is necessarily in tension with having a merged identity. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of why I said before there are people for whom ethnicity is symbolic and optional. And I guess the key thing to understand is that your experience of ethnicity is going to be shaped by a variety of dynamics, uh, one of which – and this is tricky because, you know, you want to be sure that you're careful about when you're being prescriptive, when you're being descriptive. So here I'm just going to be descriptive. When you have a group – that is being replenished at a really high level, when you are in a place where there's a very high concentration of members of your group, your subjective experience of your identity and what it means is going to be really different than if you're someone who belongs to group X. So let's say I'm a Bangladeshi American and I live in North Dakota versus if I live in Brooklyn. Your experience of that identity is going to be really, really different and how other people receive you is going to be a part of the story too. Whereas when you have some groups that are dominated by later generation uh, members of that ancestral group, your experience is going to be pretty different too. And here, I'll keep going in the descriptive direction. If you look at a lot of the large immigrant origin groups in this country right now, we're going through a striking transition in which the rates of replenishment are going down a lot. This is especially true for people of Mexican origin. Just talk through what a rate of replenishment is real quick. So a rate of replenishment is this idea that, you know, you have Greek town and Greek town depends on having people of Greek origin in that community, people who speak the language, people who are running niche ethnic businesses, and you need more Greeks to replenish that supply to ensure that that ethnicity doesn't just become, you know, kind of an antique, some museum piece, but rather is vital and lived. Now, when that replenishment stops, then what happens is that you are far more likely to intermarry, far more likely to intermingle with kind of other people, form more diverse social networks and what have you, not even if you assume that there's no discrimination, even if you assume that you're just as likely to interact with someone who's Greek or non-Greek, just when that replenishment slows down, that's a change. If you look at Mexican-Americans, this has been a very important central American story because this is a population that's gone through a tremendous amount of replenishment, but now that is changing, and that's going to have very, very big implications. When the immigration debate is chiefly about immigration from Asia and Africa as opposed to being from Latin America, I I believe that you're going to see some big changes uh, among people of Mexican origin in terms of how they look at the migration issue, but that's you know obviously speculative and it's a separate question. So that replenishment is a big part of the story, and people who belong to really small groups and people who belong to small groups who grew up in environments that were not dominated by co-ethnics oftentimes have a very different experience of how ethnicity is lived in America than those who belong to groups that are replenished and that are recognized by outsiders and that people kind of have a script for. Well, I do think there's a real and, and something that I think is worth pointing out is there's also a very big difference between being part of a group that is visible and being part of a group that is less visible, right? I mean, there are groups, you, you used the word optional a couple minutes ago. There are groups whom you walk out of your door and you are understood as that group, right? And you are treated as a part of that group because your group difference is extremely clear. And there are groups who, you know, I'm Jewish. Um, I, I mentioned this before. It's not the first thing most people notice about me. And so, you know, sometimes it is a salient characteristic in an interaction and sometimes it, it is not. But that's a quite different experience and a lot of folks have where their differences are more visible or, you know, or, you know, you can't speak the language or what it might be. absolutely true and an important part of that, by the way, is that 
that difference which is visible may well lead to misinterpretation of your identity. So, for example, I am someone who's of South Asian origin. If you were to take a look at me and see that I am operating in certain spaces, you might assume that, you know, let's say my uh, parents are immigrants from Gujarat or something like that, but they're not. They're immigrants from a different place. And there are lots of settings in which I have benefited from positive stereotypes about, um, you know, generalizations that people make about the group to which I belong. For example, that I have really strong quantitative reasoning skills. Um, you know, this is a stereotype about people of South Asian origin. It happens that there are a lot of like younger Indian American kids who are really great at math. That was not my strong suit. But, you know, I'm sure that there are all sorts of ways in which my life benefited from this kind of misunderstanding of, um, you know, me as an individual in this group context. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So I want to talk a bit about the policy synthesis you recommend at the end of the book. So let me give the sketch of it and then you'll flesh it out. So you recommend moving to a points-based, merit-based system. So as opposed to having a system that is primarily family-oriented. Sorry, uh, let me just stop you there just to say that that I really don't like the term merit-based. I think the only time I use merit in the context of immigration, I literally put it in scare quotes. Because I really do want to push – skills-based is fine. I really want to push back against the idea that only one type of immigrant has merit. That's a good correction. All right. So you you recommend a move towards a skills-based, points-based immigration system. Possibly along the lines of what Tom Cotton, uh, who is the co-sponsor of that? Uh, David Perdue. And Perdue have put forward. But unlike them, they use that act to cut the amount of legal immigration. You propose just keeping it steady. Fair? Yep. You also propose creating a universal child allowance. Uh, so you would have a pretty generous um, and a new program that would, you know, we've got this in other countries, but that would give every child uh, under a certain age in the country a guaranteed cash payment every year. It would go to their families. But as a way to ensure that we weren't having the kind of deep child poverty that we see not only in immigrant communities, but particularly in immigrant communities. And then more enforcement Are there pieces of this that I'm missing? Uh, Well, part of the enforcement agenda is having an amnesty for Mm long-settled, unauthorized immigrants. And I see that as an important part of the package deal, but also a recognition of the fact that when you're looking at the unauthorized population, there's a very big chunk of it that's old. And uh, this older population is going to be in need of safety net benefits and care. And as of right now, uh, you know, this is not something we've taken seriously. And then there's another piece of it, which I think is is quite new. So the the first two pieces, the idea that you would have a uh, skills-based system that you would keep levels reasonably steady, that you would have some kind of amnesty for the for the people here. Those are ideas that are floating around. But two things you add to it are the universal child allowance and then also the idea that America should be doing much more to project out help and stability. So it should be doing more to raise up living conditions in um, South America so that it should be doing more to help the places where people are coming from to try to manage some of that impulse that we have a moral obligation to the stranger, but not to imagine the only way we can uh, possibly 
fulfill that is by is through the immigration system. Do you want to talk a little bit about that piece of the book because that that's an unusual um, part of your prescription? Sure. Um, well, I guess. The way that I see it is that you're going to have billions of people who are going to seek opportunities who uh, currently live in low-opportunity regions, low-opportunity states. And uh, there is going to be a deep desire to move to places that offer them opportunity. There is pretty much no one in the immigration debate who is envisioning an influx. Well, excuse me, I shouldn't say that. There are certainly some people who are open to it. But you know, I think there are people who think of themselves as pretty open who are not saying, hey, let's open ourselves up to literally billions of migrants. And I guess I think of the moral stakes of that as um, meaningful. And also, I guess there's another part of it, which is that I don't just see this as, hey, we must do something for people who will otherwise be desperate and impoverished, but also as seizing an opportunity as something that would make sense as a kind of orienting principle for American foreign policy in the decades to come. So I think that there is both a great opportunity and also reason to believe that, hey, you know, we can make a really positive difference and there will be knock-on benefits for us to pursue that course. So one of the things I wondered about reading um, this approach is that it seems to me that one of the dimensions across which the whole immigration debate sits is what level of responsibility do you feel to people who are not American? Uh, you know, that relates to the question of whether or not you believe they should be able to come here, even if, even if only in an ideal scenario that we might not get to. But also it uh, reflects what do you think about foreign aid? What do you think about us using our resources to do more for others? And to some degree, it probably, I would guess, just thinking about the political coalitions we really have and who, who I know to be in them, um, affects the, the universal child allowance question. And it feels to me like what you're proposing is a compromise that would be between people who have similar levels of concern for people who are not American but have different views of social stability, ethnic enclaves, etc. But that the, the core issue we're dealing with are just a, a you know, a, a sort of a, a difference over – to what degree, of course, we're America first, but to what degree we are America first, how far back people who are not American should be in our own moral calculus? So I guess I think that there are a bunch of different strategies for justifying this approach. Um, I think that there is a hard-headed national interest realist strategy and justification, I should say, for this strategy, uh, which is simply that uh, you see in 2015 – the migrant crisis in Europe had profound effects on the politics of the continent, effects that have continued to reverberate, effects that have affected U.S. alliances. And if you envision that at a far greater scale, how that is likely to affect other you know, big emerging markets and much else, I just believe that some kind of prophylactic, thoughtful approach makes sense – purely on those self-interested grounds. Now, then there is this larger question of, you know, to what extent do you take some of these moral ethical arguments seriously about our obligations? And in that case, you know, it just seems very clear the bulk of the interstate migration in the world is South-South migration. And when you're thinking about the societies that are burdened by this, how they're approaching it, how they're thinking about it, actually some modicum of assistance um, and assistance that could come in a variety of different forms would be extremely meaningful for very poor countries. There's a lot of talk in the uh, poverty aid world about extreme poverty, about, you know, the, the benchmark is always changing, but let's say $2 a day poverty, etc. And I guess I find that, you know, it's 
it's really about aspiration and desire for more opportunity. And that doesn't stop when you cross an arbitrary $2 a day threshold. So that keeps going kind of much deeper up the scale. And I think that that is a genuine foreign policy challenge that we need to think about in new ways. So I, I would more or less, I think, agree with all that. But the thing I'm getting at here a bit is that when I imagine a political system where on any argument you could get people on the right to buy into a plan that would legalize people who are here without papers, that would accept this level of foreign responsibility to, to other countries, and that would be okay with the child allowance in part to ensure that children of poor immigrants are able to integrate into American society well, that feels to me like a political uh, ecosystem in which you wouldn't be having this discussion at all because we would have passed Gang of Hate long ago, that that it is assuming so much more shared ground than there is that it's missing something important about why we're in the place we are. Well, respectfully, I actually think of the Gang of Eight— I'm just going to assume it's all respectful. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think the Gang of Eight, I think McCain-Kennedy were actually notably different. I've seen this. I've seen people say, Raihan, your bargain is basically some version of this. And I guess I disagree. When I think of the Gang of Eight and McCain-Kennedy, I see them as deals between those who wanted more low-wage guest workers and those who wanted an amnesty. And I think the politics on both ends of that equation have changed markedly. Um, I have and I think that both of those deals were not good ones. I would have opposed both of those. And I do think that this is pretty meaningfully different as evidenced by the fact that you know, people you know, fought the idea of holding the admission steady pretty, pretty hard. So you know, I take your point on that. But I think that you know, as to this question of our politics right now in 2018, yeah, you're right. I'm writing this book for the future. I'm writing this book for the politics that we are likely to have in the decades to come. When I look at the politics of the Republican Party— I see both what were the things that Donald Trump campaigned on in terms of direction as opposed to what were the specific prescriptions in every instance, partly because when you look at Donald Trump's voters on immigration issues in particular, they did not agree with every explicit prescription of, you know, let's say when he rolled out his immigration plan in Arizona. What you see is people who are concerned about the direction. Is this going to be a policy in the national interest or is this going to be a policy where actually our views don't count? But so an interesting thing about the the Donald Trump example here is for all that immigration seems to me to be one of his true motivating uh, issues, he's not tried that hard to actually get something legislative done on it. I mean, to, to, to the point of this, right, you can imagine a much sparer bargain than the one you're talking about. Just a skills-based system at a current green card level um, mixed with the, the Dreamer amnesty plus funding for the wall, right? And it was always striking to me they never offered that. It was always the left could get dreamers if Trump got the wall and skills and a 50% cut in, in legal immigration. And so maybe the the blockage here is just Trump, but also Cotton and Purdue didn't offer that to my knowledge. Well, this is a longer conversation about the ins and outs of the politics, but I do not believe that. Uh, bill would have passed muster with folks on the Democratic side, but also there was resistance on the Republican side because of a deep insecurity about what would have happened. And that's why you needed presidential leadership. I believe that, you know, Donald Trump could have played a Nixon to China role. He has actually, he said at various points, I will go bigger on the amnesty question in exchange for other concessions. I do believe that when you look at the so-called Republican compromise bill, this was legislation that actually did make a small change with 
the parents said, let's you know move to a Canadian-style system in which the parents of citizens have renewable visas if you purchase health insurance, and also you know phased out the diversity visa lottery and replaced it with another um, visa program. So I think that that was not so far off the mark, but the trouble is that there are a lot of Republican lawmakers who simply didn't understand it, A. There was a lot of anxiety and concern about it. The reporting on it, I think, was generally quite bad in characterizing what was the actual content of the deal. And in fairness, because it actually happened so quickly and wasn't taken very seriously, and it wasn't taken seriously precisely because President Trump himself at various points undermined the idea. So I think that um, President Trump's inconstancy on this issue is definitely uh, you know, a legitimate issue. And I think that it's one of the reasons why Republicans felt very insecure in backing something that might have been seen as a more plausible deal because they weren't sure if President Trump might actually turn around uh, and then come out in opposition to it. Where do you think the politics of immigration go in the Republican Party after Trump? You know, prior to Trump, you had talk of what was it called the autopsy report. And, you know, there, there was for a minute a belief it was going to go in this Marco Rubio direction, Gang of Eight, you know, try to come to more of a, a cosmopolitan, let's say, compromise. There's Trump, you know, and in reality, I think that Donald Trump, his immigration policy is fleshed out by people like Stephen Miller. It comes from a much more restrictionist and to go back to some of our earlier frameworks, much more of just a less argument, um, you know, uh, again and again, the sticking point has been, you know, a lot of people are willing to come to a deal, but what they've wanted is less uh, and Trump himself. We can go back and forth on what he really wants, but that has been the the bottom line he's been willing to stick to. It doesn't seem to me that either one of those are necessarily going to be what becomes the party consensus after Trump. But I'm curious if you have a view on what will. So part of the question is what is going to be the composition of the party's base? And I'm of the view that 10 or 15 years from now, the folks who are voting a Republican will not look like the folks who are voting a Republican today. I think that's going to lead to a material change in the politics of immigration. I also believe that, and you know, this is again speculation, but I do believe that when you look at the second generation Mexican-American population, that is going to be very important to the politics of migration going forward. And I believe, I don't know the exact direction of these changes. And I, by the way, don't believe that you're going to flip a switch and then something called automation is going to change everything about the way the labor market works. I think we'll likely see a little bit more of the same. But it's going to be something that is going to basically intensify competition and uh, put wage pressure on some folks more than others. And I think that that is going to subtly change the politics of migration. So I guess I believe there's going to be some opportunity for what I call a more measured and humble and restrained immigration policy as opposed to more. To your larger question about less, I will say, what a lot of thoughtful people I've talked to have said, people on the restrictionist side, their view is that basically my position, the problem they have with it is that it treats current levels as sacrosanct. Whereas the number of green cards that are issued has changed quite a lot over the years. I mean, in the 90s, you created the H-1B visa and quite substantially increased the caps. You know, do you have this or that numerical limit or what have you? These are things that should be subject to normal politics rather than being, being treated as sacrosanct. The reason why I didn't pursue that line of argument is partly because, as you've observed, you know, in a way, 
I get that argument, but I do believe that rebalancing would do a lot of what I care about. Um, but I certainly don't dismiss the argument that reduction makes sense. But I do think that for some politicians, the feeling is almost like, hey, we'll have a trivial, almost symbolic reduction just to establish the point that that is something that it is acceptable to do. Um, so just to give your listeners a sense of kind of where that's coming from, uh, and it's, you know, I and mean, this is a silly example perhaps, but I often think about the fact that we have the same exact number of members of the House of Representatives you know, because we passed legislation on this in the 1920s, whereas before we would revise that number. And it's one of these ways in which it feels as though our society has grown kind of excessively rigid. You know, we can't think our way out of some of these institutions. We don't feel like we have the wherewithal, the freedom to think outside of them. And I think that's a failing. I sort of agree with that. But the sacrosanct idea doesn't go in one direction. Like, as I, as I understand the sacrosanctness of the, the green card number, it, it mostly exists that way because nobody knows how to have a debate to get it to another place, right? That that debate seems so explosive and so intractable that more or less people just don't try to change it very much. And it, it comes up, right? I mean, I don't want to say nobody's brought up legislation in, in one direction or another, but I don't buy the idea that what is happening in the Restrictionist Caucus is that they just want to loosen the debate because they're not – they're obviously not indifferent between whether or not that number goes up or down. What yeah, they, mean, want, to, what they oh, want to create a space for the number to go oh, down. Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. And I guess their concern is that when you say that, you know, kind of we can't talk about reducing it, that's what they're resistant to. And of course, there are people on the other side who, you know, say let's increase it. I guess the position that I see as dying out in the Republican Party is a position I associate with Jeff Flake, which goes something like this. Um, it both says, you know, we ought to have an amnesty. We ought to continue to have openness, uh, skills-blind immigration, including low-skill immigration. But also, I do not want Medicaid uh, for the folks who are the low-income immigrants themselves or the children of those immigrants who are themselves in low-income households. And I believe that that position, and it's funny because, you know, Jan Brewer, the former governor of Arizona, you know, she backed the Medicaid expansion, but she also was a noted restrictionist. That seems to me to be a position that is going to prove more durable than the Jeff Flake, yes, we want to be open and welcoming, but we do not want to provide safety net benefits for folks. And that was, by the way, you know, one of my biggest problems with the Gang of Eight. It was really fascinating. One important provision of it said, we are going to create this category of registered provisional immigrants. They will be barred from federal safety net benefits. And Los Angeles County was gearing up thinking, okay, this might pass. We are going to sue the federal government over this because there's a vast number of people um, who need to be healthy and who are going to seek help of this kind. So I kind of feel like that argument that has been very popular on the right in the past is something that just isn't going to fly in the future. That's interesting. I I think the idea of build a wall around the welfare state is, is going to become more popular. Um, I, I think you see it already. I mean, there have been uh, uh, executive actions already around this, but I think that the position that you were laying out here for more generosity, one of the places where I have trouble seeing it take hold is that we aren't becoming, as far as I can tell, very generous at any level. I mean, if we were having a big conversation about universal child allowances, but, you know, like with Obamacare, the idea is it would not be, it, you know, people who were not here in an authorized way or maybe even just immigrants were locked out of it. Um, that would be one thing, but, but we're not having that. I mean, to me, one of the interesting things about your book is that it proceeds forward from an idea that we have a real responsibility to the people here. We have a responsibility to ensure that they have a lot of economic opportunity. We have a responsibility to ensure that they're included in the broader society. And one of the things I was thinking reading it is that if you just took out every mention of immigration entirely, I don't 
believe that as a society, we have come, as a country, we have come to an agreement on what our responsibility is, even to a native-born child here. So you mentioned before um, this build a wall around the welfare state idea. I will say that when you look at these new public charge regulations, for example, the really interesting question is about admissibility, right? And that's where it's likely to have the biggest effect going forward. And there, I don't think of it as a as a kind of building wall in the world of the welfare state. It is partly about how do we think about future flows. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously a much longer conversation we could get into. So when you're talking about this idea of stripping people of benefits, what I've noticed in our politics is this. Narrative matters enormously. Telling harrowing stories matters enormously. And when you're looking at, for example, the Obamacare debate, you don't have an explicit shift in which people say our ideology has changed. What you see happen is that there was so much resistance from Republicans uh, to, you know, kind of making what a lot of folks saw as a drastic change to making, uh, you know, what people feared would be very deep cuts in Medicaid. And then that winds up being a quite significant change because you see that resistance and you see your coalition changing. And I guess when I do this sort of thing, you know, I am looking to the politics of a decade from now. And uh, I want to think past some of our current debates. And, and by the way, that's a hazardous thing to do. But I think it's just the way my brain works. And, and I do believe that there are certain underlying pressures that are going to be there one way or another. And I think I already see our politics bending in that direction, whether or not you see it rhetorically from elected politicians, I think of as legacy politicians, people who are, have been there from the kind of previous generation and are still around and struggling to make their sense uh, in a new and changed world. I think that's a good place to bring it to a close. So I'll ask a question we always ask here. Since you've been on the show before, I'll ask a, a smaller variant of it. What are three books on immigration, aside from your own, that you would recommend to the audience? There is a wonderful new book uh, by Tomas Jimenez called The Other Side of Assimilation. Jimenez is a sociologist at Stanford. Earlier on, he wrote a brilliant book called Replenished Ethnicity that I highly recommend. So I guess I could cheat and say that those two books are two of my three. That's reasonable. Um, and, you know, he's those someone— two books. You know, I, I disagree with him about, you know, any number of issues, I'm sure. But he's someone who does really great basic qualitative work that is accessible to the lay reader. So those are, are really good options. And for a third, another— you know, a friend of mine pointed out that uh, Samuel Huntington's book, Who Are We?, is a weird counterpoint to my book because uh, Sam Huntington, who is a professor of mine, someone I knew and uh, someone who is very good to me, he is someone who also is an alumnus, was an alumnus uh, of Stuyvesant High School. And, uh, you know, so am I. And, you know, we grew up in, in very different times. Um, but he was writing about these issues from the kind of perspective of Anglo-Protestant culture as a kind of insider and how do we think about how that's going to be shaped. Whereas I'm kind of writing about these issues kind of half from the perspective of newcomers. And when I say newcomer, I, I'm using Tomas Jimenez's sense of the term. People are first and second generation, so we would both be newcomers by that standard. So I'm writing it from it, you know, inhabiting this somewhat different place. And because I inhabit that different place, I wind up talking about the issues in a somewhat different way. But that was a kind of affecting thing to hear from a friend just because, you know, I hadn't thought about that book for a long time. But you know, it struck me as, as neat. And if people want more from you, where can they follow your work? I am the executive editor of National Review, and I write for The Corner. Uh, I write for the magazine every now and again. And, uh, you know, I'm mostly an editor. And I also am a contributing editor at The Atlantic, where I write, you know, um, four plus times a month. And you can find me there, too. Raihan Salam, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. 
Thank you to Raihan for being here. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. Joseph Clancho is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back on Monday. <laughs>